Well, let us continue in worship this morning by opening God's word to the book of Acts chapter 4. I hope you realize that the reason we come to church every Sunday is to align our thinking, our will, our affections to the Word of God. That's what we're doing here, to learn to think as God thinks, to see the world as God sees the world through the lenses of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're doing this morning as we meditate upon God's Word. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Listen to the reading of God's word this morning. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him. And brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Interesting statement. They had everything in common. An encyclopedia entry I read this week presented the following idea. And I quote, this is not my idea. I quote, the first Christians practiced a simple kind of communism. As described in Acts 4, 32 through 37, both as a form of solidarity and as a way of renouncing worldly possessions, end quote. Now, to say that I was shocked would be a massive understatement. They literally took Acts 4, 32 through 37, what we are studying this morning, and claimed it describes a form of communism. This is a gross misrepresentation of Christianity. And so I thought, we can't let them get away with that. We need to be clear about this. And in order to do this, I want us to consider communism for a brief moment. In particular, communism promoted by Karl Marx. Marx, as many others prior to him and after him, identified a problem with the world. And the problem boiled down to this. The rich who are in charge of the means of production in any society will always dominate the workers. Therefore, the way to bring harmony to society is by conflict. We must acknowledge the injustice and we must start a revolution. The workers need to rise up, take over, and get back what the rich stole. Now, some of us in this room might think, well, that's actually not that bad. He just wanted the best for the poor. Well, not really. Marx was not no Robin Hood. The communism promoted by Marx was a form of religion. 
It was, in fact, a religion antithetical to Christianity, but at the same time, with a Christian structure. One writer put it this way, and I quote, Marxism retains all the major structural and emotional factors of biblical religion in a secularized form. Marx, like Moses, is the prophet who leads the new chosen people, the proletariat, out of slavery of capitalism into the promised land of communism, across the Red Sea of bloody worldwide revolution, and through the wilderness of temporary dedicated suffering for the party, the new priesthood, end quote. Ultimately, Marx wanted something very specific. As another writer said, I quote, Marxism is nothing less than a program for creating a new humanity, end quote. How did he seek to do this? Eliminate class through conflict. If you can eliminate social distinctions and force everyone to look the same, at least in terms of their class, then you can achieve the biblical virtues without having to appeal to, quote, theistic superstition, end quote. In other words, Marx wanted to create a world in which everyone has everything in what? Common, hence the word communism, without reference to the biblical God. He wanted to create a new humanity, but without God, or to put it in biblical terms, Marxism and his proposed communism was yet another futile attempt at recreating a Tower of Babel. It was Marx thinking true change can be achieved without the intervention of God. We must emancipate ourselves from God, the Creator, and we need to create our own world. We don't need Him. Now, over the course of human history, there have been many attempts at transforming and saving our world. Many self-proclaimed saviors have come and gone. Marx was just one of many who have proposed a new idea to save and remake humanity. As Bible-believing Christians, however, we know why all these attempts always prove to be exercises in futility. By denying biblical truth, Karl Marx attempted to do the impossible, which is to change humanity from the ground up. In the Bible, we read that due to the fall of Adam, humanity is incapable of lifting itself out of its own misery. Because of the fall, relationships can quickly become contentious and even hateful. Kings can become tyrants. Governments can quickly become totalitarian. And institutions can quickly become corrupted. And history has only proven this fact, especially in Marxist communism. One historian gave this warning, and I quote, any flirtation with, let alone endorsement of, communism is the triumph of stubborn insistence over the immeasurable weight of history, 
end quote. Biblical Christianity is not communism, not by any stretch of the imagination, even though Christians do have all things in common. But the message of biblical Christianity operates upon a very different foundation, and it is this. Because of our fallenness, we know that the solution to the human plight most definitely cannot come from below. It cannot originate with us. The solution to the human problem of sin has to come from somewhere else. Fallen man cannot produce his own cure for his own sin. Why? Because sinners are bound to think and act sinfully. Therefore, the solution must come from above. The solution must come from above. And a new humanity, a new humanity can only be created supernaturally by nothing less than the power of God himself. And this is precisely what God has done in Christ Jesus, his son. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Acts 4, 32 through 37 gives us a picture of this new creation. And here's what our passage will teach us this morning. This new humanity called Christianity, unlike communism, is built upon a central event. It is sustained by a transformative blessing. And it is manifested through practical evidences. Now let us consider each one of these this morning. The central event of Christianity, resurrection, resurrection. Consider with me verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Even though this passage gives us a description of the life of the early Christians, don't miss the fact that at the center of it all is not the Christians, but Christ. At the center of it all is not the Christians, but Christ. This is why I am beginning with verse 33. At the center of the Christian message and the Christian life is not human effort, human goodness, or human love. Rather, at the center of the Christian message is the truth that God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, died for sins, was buried, and on the third day rose from the dead. This, my friends, is the truth upon which Christianity is built. Nothing else. There is no other foundation. Hence, the apostles' insistence on preaching Christ. Christianity exists because Jesus died and rose again. And Christians can live new lives also because Jesus died and rose again. So yes, Christianity is built upon a man, his teachings and his work. But this man is utterly unique. There is no one like him. This Jesus of Nazareth was and is God in the flesh. And he is the only one who can lift us up from our sin, death, and misery. Why is this the case? Why is it that only Jesus of Nazareth can create a new humanity? I will give you four reasons. 
each of which is worthy of our careful consideration. But for the sake of time, I will keep them brief. First, first reason, only Jesus can lift us from our sin and misery because he is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The eternal Son of God became a man. His body was conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus was truly God and truly man in every sense of the word, yet without sin, which leads us to the second reason why only Jesus can lift us from our misery and sin. Here it is. He lived in perfect obedience to the law that we all have broken. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, humanity has been characterized by one thing, sin. And the Bible says in 1 John 3, 4, that sin is what? Lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And lawlessness is best understood as to live as if there is no law to which we are accountable. That is sin. To be a sinner means that we live in this world as if God has not given us a law, but he has. Moreover, to be a sinner is to live as if we are not accountable to the law, but we are. Jesus, on the other hand, lived his entire life without sin. As John himself says about Jesus in 1 John 3, 5, you know that he, meaning Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. You can think of all the big names mentioned in the Bible, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Job, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Paul, Peter, etc. You can line them all up and you will find that all of them, without exception, were sinners. But when you come to Jesus, you see for the first time in human history, the one who had no sin. No sin. The perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God living, breathing, walking, and talking as a man, but in full perfection, always in obedience to the law of God. Here's the third reason why only Jesus can lift us from our sin and misery. Jesus died for sins. While we lived as if there was no law, Jesus died as if he had committed sins, yet he never did. On the cross, Jesus died, but not for himself, because by virtue of his perfect obedience to God's law, Jesus deserves nothing but glory and honor and praise. Therefore, the only explanation as to why Jesus ended up on a cross and died is this. God the Father put him there in order to satisfy the demands of his law, which we broke. But why death? Why did Jesus have to die? Because the wages of sin is death. In other words, what lawlessness deserves and what divine justice demands is death. 
You see, you sin, you die. But in his goodness, Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect man, took our place and died for us, which inevitably leads us to the fourth reason why only Jesus can lift us from our sin and misery. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And brothers and sisters, he rose from the dead in a human body. In a human body. He bodily rose from the grave. Just a few days ago, my family and I were watching a debate on television in Canada between a Reformed Christian, a Roman Catholic, an atheist female minister, and a liberal Methodist. It was quite the debate. And it all happened before an an audience. At the end, they called someone from the audience to join in, to give their opinion, to say something. The man who came was a member of a liberal denomination in Canada and called himself a Christian. At one point, at one point, this man said, and I quote, I believe Jesus rose from the dead spiritually. To which the Reformed Christian asked, so do you deny that Jesus rose physically from the dead? To which the man replied, yes. To which the Reformed Christian answered, then you're not a Christian. And I said, thank you, Lord, for men who are willing to speak truth publicly. The Christian was absolutely right. Christianity, in its very essence, is built upon a historical event that was not only spiritual but also physical. The body of Jesus, his very flesh and bones, came out of the tomb. Why is this so critical? Because his body was nailed to the cross. His body died. And in the same body, Jesus was raised. And now, after thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years of lifeless bodies being buried in the ground, and after thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lives utterly crushed by the awful reality of death, a man born in Bethlehem, who lived in Nazareth, whose name is Jesus, for the first time in all of human history, walked out of the tomb, left it empty, and death was rendered powerless over him. And why does this matter to me? Well, here's the answer. Since Jesus died for sinners, guess what? He rose from the dead also for sinners. Jesus is the second Adam. And if the first Adam brought death and ruin because of his disobedience, the second Adam brings life and restoration because of his obedience. The resurrection of Jesus was both the content of their faith, these Christians, and the power behind their new lives. So even though we are witnessing Christianity expressed in very tangible and practical ways, we cannot forget that these things were possible only and exclusively because Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead and he's still risen, these things are possible even today. Why? Because he sends the Spirit. But didn't this happen thousands of years ago? Maybe you're asking yourself, how do I 
in the 21st century benefit from what Jesus did thousands of years ago? Acts 4, 32 gives us the answer. Now the full number of those who did what? Believed. One word. Faith. Faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What did those Christians believe? They believed that Jesus and Jesus alone was their hope of eternal life. And today, more than 2,000 years later, you can too. And so I invite you this morning to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There is no other hope. But you must believe, as the song says about Jesus, you alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. You came down to find us. Let us out of death. To you alone belongs the highest praise. All of this leads us to the transformative blessing of Christianity. What is that transformative blessing of Christianity? Also, we get it from verse 33. Grace. Grace. And great grace was upon them all. Christianity, my brothers and sisters, is about understanding. Is about understanding first and foremost, not that we can lift ourselves up to God, but that God came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is grace. That is grace. God came down to us in order to lift us back up. Jesus came down to die for us in order to be raised also for us. Christianity is about understanding that unless God intervenes in human history, out of his own kindness, we perish. And this intervention in human history in the person of Jesus is what we call grace. Therefore, the name of our church is not just the name, but it is the actual reality in which we live. We are grace community church. We are a community of people who have come to understand that apart from God's goodness, we are lost. We don't come here to pat each other in the back and say, oh, how wonderful we are. We come in here to remind ourselves that apart from God's goodness, we are lost and condemned to hell. But He is good. And this, by the way, it was, it is what sets Christianity apart from the rest of humanity. Grace is why we are a new humanity. Grace is God granting to us what we could never attain on our own, namely hope of eternal life. Grace is, therefore, centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ who lived, who died, and who rose again. And this grace granted in Christ Jesus is what transforms us. Grace is not just Jesus coming down and returning to glory, but also about the same Jesus changing us from the inside out by the Spirit of God. And that, my friends, is grace. So, let me go back to Mark's. Communism fails because it is predicated upon something called humanistic environmentalism. 
This is the notion that the main problem with humanity is the environment, not sin. In reference to the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, a Marxist writer writing in the 1930s said, in reference to the Garden of Eden, that the blame is not to be placed on Adam, nor Eve, nor even the serpent. The blame for the fall should be placed, you know where? On the apple, the fruit of the tree. According to humanistic environmentalism, man cannot ultimately be held responsible for his evil. The problem is outside. You see, it's the apple. It's my environment. Thus, if you can recreate the world around him, man can eventually become good. But Marx clearly failed to understand the doctrine of human depravity. So while the failed experiment of communism has always sought to change people from the outside in, grace transforms us from the inside out. It is grace that gives us a new heart. Grace that leads us to repent of our sins. And the same grace empowers us to live as Christians. While I was preaching through the book of Ephesians, I spent several weeks on Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible. And after meditating on that section for that long, I came to understand grace in the following way. This is what I said several months or years now, years ago. Grace is the Christocentric favor of God, monergistically lavished upon wrath-deserving sinners for the purpose of transforming their lives into an endless doxology. In that definition, I included several characteristics of grace. The center of grace, the origin of grace, the objects of grace, and the purpose of grace. The center of grace is Christ Jesus. The origin of grace is God's own goodness, hence the word monergism. The objects of grace are wrath-deserving sinners, and the purpose of grace is doxology, meaning a life of continual praise through both our lips, our thoughts, and our actions. Thus, when we talk about grace, we're talking about a comprehensive reality that changes every area of life. As such, grace will manifest itself in very practical ways in our lives. Our passage will emphasize two. Here are two massive evidences. And listen to this. Don't miss this. Here are two massive evidences that Jesus rose from the dead and that we are a people of grace. Don't forget those words. They matter. I'll return to them. So here are the practical evidences of Christianity. First, supernatural unity. Supernatural unity. How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Because Christians are united. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Believe it or not, and I keep hitting on communism because I think it's such a great example of what not to do. In communism, unity is one of the core desires. Did you know that? Utopia on earth can only be achieved precisely when all men are united under a common goal. In fact, the man with whom the term utopia originated, Thomas More, spoke of unity as the supreme virtue. 
how interesting to know that even Marx wanted unity among men. At the same time, how sad that he sought to achieve it apart from God. Note that I use the word supernatural unity because unity, the one heart and soul of Christians, is not the product of man-made ideas or common goals. It is the product of the Holy Spirit's work within us. Our unity as Christians can only be explained by looking to God, saving us in Christ, and filling us with the Spirit. It is therefore a supernatural unity. You cannot manufacture it through artificial means, nor force it through humanistic environmentalism or whatever else man can come up with. Our unity can only be Spirit-created as we read in Ephesians 4, 3. Now, let me make something here very clear, an important point to be made. One of the signs, one of the signs of having one heart and soul is when Christians remain together even when things get tough. These Christians that we read about here were facing real persecution, real persecution, real oppression. Yet, they remained united. You know what that teaches? That means that even in the midst of severe difficulties, challenges, discouragements, and hostilities, their affections were on Christ, His glory and His kingdom, not their own preservation. Not their own preservation. The truth of the rule and reign of Christ was so deeply ingrained in their hearts and minds that no amount of persecution could intimidate them from remaining united in the truth. So are we one heart and soul? Here's the second evidence of Christianity, abundant generosity, abundant generosity. I want to point out a few characteristics of their generosity. First, notice with me that it was a submissive generosity. That is, submissive to God's sovereignty. I believe it is now no coincidence that this section is inserted here right after these Christians collectively affirmed God's sovereignty over all things. If the earth is the Lord's because He created all things, then our private property is ours, but only in a derivative sense. At the end, we are just stewards of God's kindness. We are stewards of God's kindness. Second, it was an uncoerced generosity. It was an uncoerced generosity. Verse 32 and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. For as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. So what it says here is that no one in the first century lost the right to private property. They willingly gave of what was rightfully theirs in the first place. It was uncoerced. Third, it was a sensitive generosity, meaning sensitive to the needs of those around. 
It says that it was distributed to each as any had need. So it wasn't that Christians got all their resources together into a common pot and everyone grabbed what they wanted. Not at all. It was based on need. This also explains that not everyone was in need, but only some. Poverty was not the rule. And I will say a little more of that in just a few moments. But notice also that this generosity was a trusting generosity, meaning they trusted the oversight of the apostles in the distribution of the proceeds. Verse 35 said that they laid it at the apostles' feet and then talks about Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, and we will encounter him later on in the book, so I won't say much about him at this point. But twice we are told that the people, after selling their possessions, brought what was gathered and laid it at the apostles' feet. They entrusted the, the proceeds to the apostles. Now, even though we no longer have apostles in the New Testament sense of the word, the church was not left without leaders called elders. Hence, the need for qualified elders who are trustworthy, mature, and faithful. And finally, we see here that this generosity was also biblical, was biblical. To which you might say, well, that's quite an obvious point. We're reading it in the Bible. But what I mean by this is that this generosity was actually rooted in Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, God said to Israel, but there will be no poor among you. In Acts 4.34, we read, there was not a needy person among them. God's command upon his people to be generous has not changed with the dawning of Christ. If anything, it became stronger. So this leads us to the universal principle. To the universal principle. This is important to clarify here. Certainly, it would be a terrible mistake to assume that all Christians throughout all the ages are commanded to sell their private properties, gather the proceeds, and share it with everyone else at all times and everywhere. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this, neither this passage nor Acts 2, 42 through 47 are meant to perpetuate poverty among Christians or to turn poverty into a virtue. Neither does the Bible affirm the idea that all should have the same amount of riches or poverty. In our passage, some clearly had plenty of material resources and were the ones who helped sustain those who did not. Clearly, not everyone was equally poor. Not everyone was equally rich. And this is what we read in Scripture. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, Paul said, To the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, but to be generous and ready to share. So were there rich people among Christians? Yes, there were. Was generosity limited to the rich? No. Paul also said in Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
The poor were tempted to steal. But Paul said, no longer. Work honestly and share from what you have. So the universal principle is not, you must sell everything you have always and live in poverty. Not at all. Here's the universal principle, which is binding on all of us. Unity and generosity are the practical and necessary expressions of who we are in light of our union with the crucified and risen Christ. Unity and generosity are the practical and necessary expressions of who we are in light of our union with the crucified and risen Christ. A few moments ago, I said that unity and generosity are two massive evidences of what? Unity and generosity are two massive evidences that Jesus rose from the dead and that Christians are a people of grace. And what I said is exactly what I meant. Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again, is creating a new humanity by grace. Because he died and rose again, we have received grace. How? In this way, the risen Jesus gives us the Spirit as we saw in Acts 2. And because of the Spirit, we have supernatural unity and we can exercise abundant generosity. Throughout the ages, the story of Christianity has been this. Christians have lived, can live, and do live faithfully to Christ in unity and generosity, even, even in the midst of a corrupted world. Because the same Jesus who empowered the first Christians still rules from heaven. And the same Spirit still indwells God's people all over the world, even in Glen Rose, Texas. Now, I want to finish by bringing your attention back to the reference in Deuteronomy chapter 15. In that passage, we see Israel being told to give generously to the poor. But the context is the seventh year, the sabbatical year. Their generosity was to be even more pronounced by the fact that the sabbatical year was a reminder that God is the one who ultimately provided for their needs. They could rest in God's salvation and provision. God rested on the seventh day from his work of creation. Eventually, this became the pattern for God's people to also rest from their labors on the seventh year cycle. And in this sabbatical year, generosity flowed even more. So let me ask you a question. Who is our rest? The Lord Jesus is our rest. In Jesus, we come to find rest from our works. Our Sabbath rest, although not, though no fully consummated yet, has been inaugurated and secured by Christ. Therefore, therefore, generosity should flow from us even more. So here is our calling for this morning. Let our unity and giving reflect the glorious reality that our rest is in Christ Jesus. We don't keep the unity begrudgingly. 
nor give our tithes out of compulsion, but out of the reality that defines us, namely, Jesus resurrected from the dead. For the Christian, both divisiveness and lack of generosity are issues of faith. So here's the bottom line. There are many ways through which we can proclaim our faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are many ways through which we can proclaim that faith. Don't make the mistake of thinking that unity and generosity have nothing to do with it. They do. Unity and generosity matter to God. Next Sunday, as we enter into chapter 5, we will see what happens when unity and generosity are interrupted and attacked by Satan. So I hope you won't miss it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word which speaks to us even today. And it will never lose its relevancy. And so, Father, as your people, as those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the call to which we have been called. Help us to be a people of unity, united under our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ knowing that our sins are forgiven in him. And help us to be a people of generosity, knowing that you are the one who cares for us. And may our unity and our generosity be a witness to the world that Jesus Christ is indeed alive on the throne, ruling and reigning. And so may this be a testimony to those who are walking in darkness. That through Christ Jesus and in him, we are made a new creation. And may all the glory be given unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.